0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: Hey Jim. Hey guys. Hey Matt. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Well, I thought your blog really helped clear things up today a little bit.
2: Oh, good. Okay. Well, maybe I'll uh, go over it a little bit.
1: Uh, it's a convincing. It's a convincing argument. I, I can see why you think if you just read through Campbell, you you got to give yourself over to his thesis. You know.
2: Yeah. Uh, you it know, just
1: really undoes, though. You know, I was thinking it really undoes. I think that Campbell's really striking at the very heart of. Much of the theological edifice of you know the East and the West, really. I mean, he's really in some ways right. The whole idea of justification as unconditional. Would you say that that's the the understanding of the churches on the ground on the ground level? You know, Are, are most people thinking of the gospel as an as an unconditional, unqualified God saying yes? The those opening chapters of Romans are uh just rhetorical showing the inadequacy of the law in every way and that we would still say that you know that we'd have to participate i mean that's the that's the thing it's like we say it's unconditional but it's like we were saying in the talk before that from god's from god's end it's unconditional but humans make it conditional or am i just making the same move and saying that the condition is is you have to participate
2: in it i think this is where it gets tricky Because we've all been so trained and inundated. In other words, I think that probably wherever we're coming from, even if we've heard the language of unconditional, and this is, I've done a couple blogs that just saying that what has happened is the two ideas have been fused, and Martin Luther fuses them. And you can go to Martin Luther and find, by the way, Brian, good to see you. <laughs> Sorry, Never. we we jumped right in here. You could go to Martin Luther and find a clear statement of an unconditional salvation.
1: Unconditional. I mean, doesn't he says things like you know sin boldly or
2: something like this? But you can also go to Martin Luther and find not only the opposite, but a torturous opposite. In other words, by the time he gets through saying what is required. In other words, oh justification by faith. Faith is unconditional. But then by the time in other places that he ends, you know he defines faith, you can't even doubt a little bit, or you nullify grace. So I think that what we've all received, Luther and Calvin, I think, are both attempting to describe unconditional salvation, unconditional election. And I like Alvin Kimmel. I like what he's done for us on that. You know, he says this is what the Protestant Reformation has brought us, and I think we need to acknowledge that. After acknowledging it, I think we need to go to Campbell and say, yes, but it is a confused and confusing story in which a conditional understanding has actually been fused with an unconditional understanding.
3: Uh, I'm thinking, Paul, that your um, the insights from previous classes about <clears throat> being critical of the pervasiveness of dualism helps here because I heard the Bible Answer Man. Anybody know who he is?
1: Yeah, Hank Hanegraph, he's Orthodox now.
3: Yes. When the Bible Answer Man was sort of refuting John MacArthur today, he represented, I think, a, at a certain level, a contractual so conditional understanding, because he said we have to, basically, we have to find the balance. And when you hear the word balance, you know, it's like Luther trying to stay on top of a breezed horse. And that's an agonistic struggle. So it gets in there in all these places, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant of all stripes. And that was my observation. I just really appreciate the. Every time a a dualism comes up where you kind of have to navigate the slippery, you know, uh, edge between them, you know you're in an agonistic struggle. And there's a fundamental dualism that's there and it's not penetrated by the gospel.
2: That's it.
1: That's it. In one sense, this actually really makes Romans easier to understand. You know, the way that we've been taught Romans, it gets extraordinarily confusing to read through just starting in chapter one, going all the way through, you know, it gets pretty easy around chapter 12 because it's more pastoral, you know, it's harder to do, you know, but that, and that, that to me is compelling. It's compelling to me that boy, if, if Campbell's right, Romans all of a sudden becomes a lot more intelligible to, you know, and if you, especially if you were taught this, if you were brought into the faith and explained, well, this is what Paul's doing, you know, he's setting up the inadequacy of the. Of the law and things like that, and using the teacher as a rhetorical strategy, we've really it gets super complicated, and I'm I'm wondering if we may have just absolutely uh, exponentially,
2: uh, you know, complicated it because of bad theology. You know, whatever we're going to do with Romans, we know the heart of it is in five, six, seven, and eight. There's what Paul is saying. The heart of what he is saying about the law. Is in chapter 7 you know if you take chapter 7 and retrospectively look back at what he's doing in one two and three then I think you set the parameters you understand he can't be doing what we have traditionally thought that he was doing because in chapter 7 sin is a deception In regard to the law, and that is the universal problem. That would be a
1: really strange way to write a letter, though, right? Like this is a letter presumably supposed to be read in the churches, and again, I'm just thinking that if Douglas Campbell is saying, "Yeah," but the way that who's reading the is it Phoebe, whoever's reading the letter, you know, that isn't that what Campbell's saying? That there's a sort of a, a rhetorical strategy that the reader would understand by the motions of the speaker or the you know the gestures or whatever that this is the type of structure of the argument because what i'm saying is is like do you have to have this secret that roman 7 is you know you got to wait until the middle of the letter to get the key and then understand
2: everything he's been saying beforehand you know to get it no oh no, you you don't have to but because of the way that we have read it you know i don't, i don't know about phoebe how phoebe's reading the letter i don't know that that plays into it yeah i mean but what does play into it is to to my mind is this the structure in other words we have to ask ourselves could paul affirm does paul believe anywhere what is affirmed in 118 to 32
1: And that's what's so hard to understand. That's what I liked about your blog today because you really point that out well to say that this isn't the God that Paul, St. Paul believes in. I mean, it's not that I'm saying, Oh, well, it's important about how, you know, Phoebe, her mannerisms or whatever. But I do think that Paul clearly meant this letter to be distributed and understood. And what I, and what I think you're saying, what we're saying is, is that we have misunderstood apparently. You know, obviously we have the Orthodox, the Catholic, the Protestant. I just saw that there's forty-four thousand denominations now. Forty-four thousand Protestant denominations. So you know, clearly this letter has been widely read and widely misunderstood.
2: In other words, if you're gonna divide, I'm guessing that most division is over this letter. Maybe that's an overstatement. I mean But you know, justification theory is derived. From Romans. And Galatians. It is Romans and Galatians, but as Campbell points out, Romans 1 to 4 is called the citadel of justification theory. For a reason. There is our first divide. Did the Protestants have part of this right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they did uh, arrive at an understanding and a rearticulation of an unconditional faith that we should appreciate. Did they do it in an adequate manner? Absolutely not.
1: Yeah, and it can be argued that even as far back as Origen, you know, the whole theological tra- tradition sort of flows out of Origen, right? And and there's a whole debate among the scholarship with what Origen is doing with justification. Thomas Sheck writes a wrote, wrote a whole book on it, I believe it was Thomas Sheck, and, you know, because Origen at the very beginning is talking about merit, you know, he's talking about that's a key word in origin is merit. But, of course, that carries with it the weight, at least in 2023, of some sort of conditional. It uh, and, and may even have for uh, even for a universalist like Origin had that same sort of condition, you know, conditional nature to it. But the fact remains that I do I do like how Father Kimmel, uh, I never thought of it like that. You know, we can be so kind of in this polemic, you know, between the holy catholic and apostolic church or whatever in the the protestant church you know that you lose sight of that but that what father kimmel is saying is is these guys were really trying to hit upon something that may have been lost in the tradition uh which is is like an unmerited um unconditional election you know calvin takes it a step further and it's an unconditional predestination So it's very interesting that we're all kind of trying to say almost a very similar thing, but just in a slightly different register, but that slightly is everything, you know, because you end up getting a different God almost, right? In other words, on the one hand, you have the unconditional love of God being held out to you, all shall be saved kind of thing. God, you know, is all merciful. He's the kingdom has come the proclamation has been made its so it's, it's done you know the cosmos has been saved and on the other hand these guys are saying well it's for the elect or for the, for the other guys itself for those who merit it maybe with the Roman Catholics or you know I don't know uh, but the point is is that so many different readings have come uh, from the the citadel
2: if nothing else we're, we can clear up I think we're clearing up the book of Romans. And I think Campbell has done that. At least he's done that for, in, in to my mind. I mm. think this is a huge step. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have questions and issues otherwise. Uh, and what, what you're saying, Matt, I just want to emphasize a part of what you're saying here. I think that it may be that, like people within justification theory, the Roman Christians... Did not know what to do with the resurrection, right? And right. notice that Paul begins the gospel, his gospel, with a pronouncement of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in like the third verse or something of the of the letter. And it almost me makes me think, you know, if sixteen and seventeen is not his thesis, boy, he's sure going to develop the concept of resurrection as a key part of that which saves it may be you know in this is picture of uh, propitiation or however you know expiation in uh, 323 if this is a reflection of what these christians believe i don't think that they themselves have an appreciation for the resurrection they know about the death of christ and how that pays for their sins or something but that what they've missed is well our real problem is that we were in bondage to sin and death and that sin and this is paul this is chapter five five is as unconditional as it comes either you're in the first there's the first Adam everything that was in the first Adam is undone in the second Adam now paul certainly adds to that and he builds upon that but that's where he begins, and that's our kind of their, our reference point then is that in the first Adam comes death, in the second Adam comes life. It is resurrection is an integral part of what of how Jesus saved. And you said that, Matt, I was just kind of, I I, I, I was bringing that up. No, I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely critical, and the reason why
1: is because of the work, You know, you draw all this out in your book, on your work on chapter 8. In other words, like this whole, I think that how, what Campbell's work, how it relates to yours, is that, uh, you know, you really are tracing, doing almost like a genealogy of sin and death and the subjectivity, and then that goes all the way up to Romans 8. Where, in other words, there's all these false ways of being, knowing, you know, our orientation to the law and all this stuff. That that's all going on through up until eight, and then Paul just breaks out into full blown theology proper, you know, where it's the love of God, it's this community, it's prayer, it's you know, it's life. It's like a pure. I think you know, Paul. Correct me here if I'm wrong. I, wouldn't you say that? Romans chapter eight, which of course culminates in the love of God that he is convinced that neither death nor life, you know, so he goes into all that. Is that not his that is his gospel? That's
2: it. That that
1: There's now no
2: we're we're a part
1: of Paul's gospel. In chapter eight, is there a quote unquote teacher?
2: No. No. No.
1: No, there isn't. Because it's Paul's gospel.
2: And the travesty is we imagine Paul's gospels back in one to four. How so? Because we're doing false teacher gospel. We're doing legalism. We're doing retributive justice. We're doing a law-based understanding. And so the question, you know, really the big question, if we're going to read one to four in a traditional way, we're going to fuse it all together, do justification theory, can we fit that together with chapter eight? Or chapter five or chapter six. Right, right. I don't, I don't think it can. Only well, if we think
4: that Paul's getting poetic there. Right? Yeah. Like, or yeah. something. I, I, it's such a good question, you know, well, like how. I mean, but I, it makes sense that, that one to four, we hold on to it. Right? Like that, to me, reading this whole, the whole argument to me is almost like r- demands a theodicy of like, how God could you, <laughs> could this be the case? For all of these years and so much pain and suffering coming from the travesty of us holding on to this, but if it's part of just the way that, like, whatever our, our nature, whatever the the, typo- the topology of of the super ego, right? If if somehow it's just part of it, it's mm-hmm. so hard to escape that. Um, maybe that's just why it's always been there, um, and maybe Paul's letter just didn't stick. You know, the Roman church got it, and I thought, thanks, Phoebe, for reading this to us. We'll think about it.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But, Paul, my question, though, Paul, with Campbell, though, and again, I guess I would just have to do the reading. So what does he do? Just go through every verse in one through four and says, this is Paul, this is the teacher, this is Paul? Because that's when the problem for me comes in. It's like, well, man, who can... Who can do that work? And who, who knows who's right and who's wrong? And was Paul talking about that, you know, we all fall short of the glory of God and we're all sinners? Like, was that Paul? Was the,
2: where, you know, in other words, where do you find Paul? And this is Campbell's, this is what he's doing. He's not doing just every verse. He's doing every verb and noun and, you know, he's breaking the grammar down. It, it, he is doing it at a very micro level. So if this is why I'm not impressed with somebody that doesn't read him and dismisses him. Well, at least do him the favor of following the argument. And then, if you have a counter-argument, I want to hear it. You know, if you've got an explanation that is better than this, and I understand all the problems, because, wait a minute, this is such a counter to what, at least the last 500 years, since we've had justification theory. But the argument is, I think, irresistible because of the micro level of his argument.
1: The thing about, it though, is it's so new, right? So that's the It's like, that was my first suspicion. I was like, well, have any of the church fathers ever, you know, thought what Douglas Campbell is saying? Have they, has anybody been like, oh, yeah, look, this is rhetoric. This is what Paul does. This is how he does it. And so for 2,000 years, you know, the Holy Spirit has uh sort of we've missed this like jeff was saying like whoops you know we we miss paul's gospel in the church you know that seems like a miss you know
4: and and i guess the thing is is that and i think dbh maybe even says this in uh tradition apocalypse you know we go for hundreds of years on the wrong road totally like all the time in the history of the church
3: yeah And, and, and
4: although it's at the same time you just feel like yeah but like in my tradition, didn't the Holy Spirit direct me? Like, didn't well, the Holy Spirit, <laughs> you know, I'm Plymouth Brethren, the Holy Spirit got it right. With right, us. Right.
1: <laughs> right. No, I know, that's what, and so we, in our classes, that's what we've been doing. I mean, it's a question about theology, and I think that David, you know, the Douglas Campbell is sort of jumping in right to what we've been doing in these different classes and stuff, because we've been asking the question just about the nature of theology itself. In other words, is it... Is it looking backwards? Is it looking forwards? Is it static? Is it a law? You know, what? how does tradition function? And so that's why I'm open. I get, I was just, this, I, You know, at first I was like, wait a minute, this seems like a really different new reading of Paul. But I'm also open to and hoping that theology will move beyond, and especially, you know, in certain quarters of the church where we need to be reminded of the unconditional nature of the gospel and of God's love. It's a, it's quite, it's a worthwhile project. Yeah. Himmel says an interesting thing. He says you can really find out where a preacher of the gospel stands if you ask them, do you believe that the gospel is unconditional? And if the priest or the pastor minister or whatever says, yes, of course, it's unconditional. And, you know... You can wait for the, but you have to, you know, whatever. In other words, there could be a but, you know, coming where it's, yeah, it's unconditional, but you have to get, you know, do this or do that or something else has to happen. It's just an interesting way to kind of pose it because I would even say, and still in my understanding that the gospel is absolutely, it's an unconditional, it's an accomplished fact, but. Humans, in order to receive the gift, have to actually receive the gift and participate in it, right? It doesn't, I mean, even in the ages to come, whether it's Gehenna or wherever you want to call it, in the afterlife, it's, you still have to receive the love of God. You do have to, but it's unconditional in the sense that from God's free gift of love, that it's, uh, you know, it's undiscriminate. It's not, it's universal. But I would even say, but, We really do have to receive it in order to, you you have to, I mean, we got some Kierkegaardian in this regard or whatever. You really do have to appropriate it, um, in order to receive it. And I think that this is the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, too. You know, that the king, that you do have to receive the gift of God's love and that that is the, that is the torturous, Experience that Brian was just describing, or, or the tortures, the fires of Guiana, or whatever else, is the ref, you know is the refusal of the gift of God. Um, and I don't think that makes it conditional. It just means that you do have to receive the gift of God's uh, that God has given,
3: right? Well, what about what about this? I've got a, an example that might be uh, resonate with you, Matt. Um, I heard someone. There was a patient who was dying. I'm a chaplain, y'all know, it. like you are, Matt. The patient had been, in previous hours, voicing anxiety, but at this point was unresponsive and just really transitioning hard. And there was a person giving that, a pastor was giving that patient some comfort, and I was present in the room. And the comforting words that the pastor gave were great, were all great up to a point. Um, he was saying, It doesn't depend on you. You have complete uh, ability to rest right now and don't have to worry that it doesn't depend on the things that you do. And he caught himself and said, Only thing it requires is something you probably did a long time ago. <laughs> Which I was like, Okay, that probably just made her anxiety go right back up, right? <laughs> well, you have my baptism or what? No, oh, well, he was talking about. Um, accepting Jesus and meaning it, you know? Mm-hmm. If that's a, a work uh, a work of the law, if the new law is, if, if grace is founded upon a contract of, that preceded it, that was law-based, and that was plan A, and plan B is that Jesus fulfilled everything, all you have to do now is accept Jesus, suddenly I think that's the grounds for just trans transferring all the anxiety about keeping a million laws to, did I really keep that one law I'm supposed to keep? That's a, that's what I was thinking.
5: Tell me if I if I have my microscope looking at a detail that's not here. I, I'm looking at verse 17, for in the gospel the righteousness of righteousness of God is revealed, and I'm going to call that the present tense, that is by faith from first to last. And then the very next verse, which Campbell I think Campbell says this is where the teacher's gospel begins. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So we've got seemingly we have two gospels. And I'm asking the question in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And the question I have, does the flag come up? That is
2: that something
5: like a death drive?
2: Oh, that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. That, uh, if I had to characterize this whole false gospel, yeah, I think that's the way I would characterize it. It is death drive that what we see in a propitiating, you know, or in a, this kind of retributive justice system. Your question is a wonderful question because I think this hits it. Because I think the difference that, in other words, there's actually two differences that are posed in the book of Romans. And the difference includes who God is. In other words, what is is the nature of God? In this understanding, God is primarily, the wrath of God is revealed. Campbell did a long thing, and Jim, you may be asking a question here more complicated he did a whole thing on the now. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven now. Yeah. And I, I have to admit that he may have lost me a little bit in, the, uh, in his explanation. I know one of the things that he's saying is that this teacher, you know, the false teacher, in presenting his gospel like a good teacher, television evangelist is saying boy you know you better turn or burn revealing the wrath of god in his sermon you know in in his message and of course the main focus of the wrath for this teacher may in fact be a a future judgmental wrath but i think that he as a spokesman for god is revealing it now so yes i i do think it's violent it's death-dealing, it's condemning, and of course, in this instance, it's condemning of others. What Paul is going to bring out is, part. what Campbell is saying is true, but I think we can also go a step beyond what Campbell is saying. He's going to say that the, the false teacher is caught up in his own logic, but you understand, I think, psychoanalytically, but the betrayal that we're going to get in Romans 7 is this approach to who God is is ultimately a masochistic, self-punishing, death-driven uh, understanding. I think it's just a matter, do we project that out or do we project that in? But maybe that doesn't even matter because in in the condemnation of the other, what Paul is saying, oh, you've condemned yourself. But I think psychoanalytically, that is literally true between the superego and the ego. The ego is the Gentile within all of us. And the superego is this self-righteous Jewish teacher. That's an illustration, right? I'm not, I don't mean that literally, but I think that dialectic between the superego and the ego we're getting the superego we're getting the death drive we're getting the condemnation that is the image of the of god the authority figure the law that we affect that we take up into ourselves Whether It doesn't matter what side of the law we're on. If we imagine we're law keepers or law transgressors, in Paul's picture, the law is going to always do the same thing to us. The, The part of the tragedy in the misreading, you know, and probably many Christians, I don't know that this is such a strange idea. Why would it be a strange idea that we all know that the basis of judgment is what we do, right? It's our ethics. It's our works of the law. What else could it be? It's a retributive system. We know that, in other words, I'm, I'm saying we know, I think that for most of us, that is our picture of reality. Is that true Judaism? I don't think it is, but I think it's not a Judaism that has strayed too far in Paul's depiction then of the human problem, because what he's going to say is we've all, I think by the time we get to chapter 7, and if we would look back on what he said in these early chapters, what we have in this false teacher is exactly the problem of sin manifest in this teacher. I loved your illustration.
1: I know it's just an illustration, but I, th- I thought it was really brilliant of likening the, you know, there's two types of people in a psychoanalytic sense, right? Of There's two types of people that there's the ego, uh, which would correspond to the Gentiles, right? And the superego that would correspond to the Jews and that dialectic that's going on there. I would say this, and this is a hill I guess I'm willing to die on. I think that the gospel is conditional in the sense that our lord jesus christ is the condition of the gospel in other words what paul is is offering is an alternative to that law to that dialectic to the uh, you know to those two types of people or whatever in the person of our lord jesus christ and the reason why even christians can miss this is because they believe that there's a god behind the curtain that there's a God who's different than our Lord Jesus Christ. That there's a call it a law, call it the Father, call it whatever you want to call it, but that there's something stand that stands behind Christ that's the true face of God. But that's not the teaching that St. Paul has on offer. The teaching that St. Paul has on offer is that Jesus Christ is the true face of God. He is the, he is salvation. He is creation. He is incarnation. In other words, that this is the condition for salvation in the sense that Christ himself is the life. He is the light. He is the word from God. He, you know, he, he, he is the love of God. He's the incarnation of God. And that any other teaching or any other teacher who would offer anything up other than Christ or to try to substitute something for Christ, whether it's the circumcision or the law or the food laws or the ethnicity. In other words, we can do it a million different ways, and we still do, and that's still relevant to our context in 2023, is that what's always being offered up, even to the church, is something other than our Lord Jesus Christ. We can clothe it in Jesus. We can, you know, maybe, maybe it's nationalism. Maybe it's whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, but we put, you know, we clothe it in the vestments of Christ or whatever. But my point in all this is to say that I think that what Paul is offering the Romans and is offering the world is God's condition for salvation is our Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, in other words, you do have to receive Christ. And I'm not talking about the different world religions here or whatever. I, I think that, you know, a good a good religious person is going to receive Jesus Christ, you know. But what I'm saying is, is that we can exchange the gospel of Christ, this is Paul's gospel, for some other sort of thing that would save us. And I think that that must be what Paul's inveighing against. They call it works. Call it faith. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but what is on offer, I think, from St. Paul is is a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. That that is God's south. You know, Christ is God. So that is you know, Christ is God's salvation, and that to not receive that gospel is to, by definition, receive death. To by definition to receive everything that comes along with you know the law, evil, sin all the different things that Paul's describing there in those early chapters. Um, and I, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a hill I'm willing to die on that. God's condition of salvation really is our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the son of God. It's all that he's all the, there is, he is all things. He is in all things for Paul. He is to all things whom are all things, you know, from all things, you know, this is Paul's language. So, yeah, I mean, I understand what Brian was saying about the deathbed. It's like, oh, you know, I really hoped you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that St. Paul's gospel is very, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And what the temptation of the false teachers is always going to bring us is to offer any health, wealth, the nation state, you know, the law, whatever, some sort of substitute um, that would obscure the glory of of God in Jesus Christ.
5: Here's my question. I'll just lump it into two groups. There's a death-defying mindset or lifestyle, or yeah, you know, we can be captured in a death-denial process, and we can be. Here's here's the question: moving into a death-accepting process, which resembles or uses Christ as a model. I'm I'm imagining those two approaches. Can you toss out? a catalyst, or a trigger, or a, uh, anything that would initiate that movement. There must be a hundred things, but I'm just asking for anything that comes to mind.
2: I'm not sure uh, about the word initiate, because even the initiating is something that's beyond us. That's part of what is meant by unconditional. In other words, I think that the picture of bondage is to such an ex- a degree that all we can do is hear this thing then we get into the the what do you do to to receive it well i think even the faith is a gift right i think literally that that is true but if i if we could take out the word initiate the way that the new testament pictures you know in philippians the picture of the kenotic giving the self-emptying of Christ. This then, you know, what we're doing right now, what, what I, I think we've done is recognize that our entanglement with the law turns out to be definitive of our entanglement with sin, right? The thing that we empty ourselves out of is this thing that we would normally cling to under a retributive, you know, however you want to say it. Uh, it sounds too stiff to talk about works righteousness. Psychologically, psychoanalytically, the nature of the human subject is that we cling, we desperately cling to the law. And by law, I mean the symbolic order, the cultural structures, you know, we, could, we need to tie all that in. And once we've got that straight, we recognized what is required is a relinquishing of that system, a deliverance from out of that system, and the deliverance to a new system. Did I hit okay. what
5: you're? Here's another way I want to toss it out. After going through the, these readings and listening to the lectures, and I find myself having—I'll call them micro conversions. It's just like, oh, that's so simple, and then, I, and then. That kind of—I won't say it fades away, but then, then I'll—I'll I'll see it. I'll see it again. I'll see it, and then it'll like if like I give it some more time to s- do some more thinking or or just re- reflecting. For the time being, I'll just call them micro conversions.
2: I like that. I like the word. But you're seeing parts of this, and maybe that's all any of us can do. Yeah, we're all involved in micro conversions. Yeah, because I think this thing is pervasive what is being described part of the problem that we have in entry into paul's gospel it's so radical it's hard for us to even and going from judaism to christianity is the archetypical problem that all people have in other words i don't think jews are exceptional the the way in which paul is using judaism is to illustrate the human predicament and Christ's delivery from that predicament. So we're not going to conceive or understand Judaism, but that's true of every human system. I don't think that we can properly conceive of it. In other words, the difference between the forward-looking view and the retrospective view, now looking back on what judaism is but also looking back you know i think that's what Romans 7 is all about it is this retrospective understanding in which we we have to go through these micro many conversions maybe
1: i mean paul seems to be saying that even in the old testament the old testament church was saved by christ right by their faithfulness to god
2: and that's yeah that's chapter by when we get into chapter four you know romans So he's going to read Christ. He's going to do, you know, origin is just following Paul in reading Christ into the whole, whole story. Let me get this before us. At least this struck me as key. Here in one to three, we're kind of struggling, you know, should we define sin as law and transgression? Is that a good way to define sin? And, you know, that's a lot of people read the first three chapters and they imagine that's the extent of the discussion, that uh, it's kind of a, a picture of we shouldn't judge, but because we've fused the teacher and Paul, we actually end up doing both. This is what I said about Luther, you know, we end up thinking that, yeah, Jesus delivers us, but the de- definition of his deliverance is in and through the law. So let me read just the Romans 7, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And by, you know, we all know that Paul is teaching that salvation is deliverance from the law. Even as I'm saying that, I realize, oh, that that, even that phrase could be misunderstood to mean, oh, Jesus delivers us from the punishment of the law, taking the punishment. No, Paul is doing something more radical, and I think Jesus is doing something, that we're being delivered from this entire system. And I think it's only when we recognize the law is the problem, That's not exactly right, but at least it's our orientation to the law. In other words, Paul is going to say the law is wholly just and good. There's actually nothing wrong with the law. The law was a temporary measure, but he's describing desire as being given rise to in conjunction with the law. Matt knows all this. Well, most of all of you know this now, but I'm just saying stuff. I'm trying to say we got to have front and center the the problem and solution that Paul is working out in chapter 7 and 8, Paul is saying God himself is displaced by the law. God the Father, Abba, is displaced by the law. Christ is displaced by the law. The Holy Spirit is displaced by the law. That, I mean, that may be too much unless you read through Paul's picture here, That is that we're going to find ourselves in participation in the Trinity or we are participants in the law. Those are our two choices. I don't think there are any other choices. So the human predicament is the predicament. And of course, what we've done, we've had to expand our understanding of what we mean by law. We've had to expand our understanding of how it is that we're all Implicated in this thing.
1: Another way to say that, though, right, Paul, is that that's Paul. That's the condition. What you just said, in other words, there's either the participation in the Holy Trinity through our Lord Jesus Christ, or the law. Call that what you want it, but that's Paul's. That's what Paul has on offer.
2: And and I like what you said, Matt. Actually, I had said something very similar. Jesus is the condition, and what we mean by condition, the base reality. The here is the reality as we have it. Here are the conditions. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. It's either that or the mistaken understanding that the law is the condition. And so conditionalism, you know, it is always in some way to fall back into the law as the system. Once we say all that and we, we have the Paul's view on tap here in chapter seven, then we turn back to Romans 1, 18 to 32. And, you know, whatever this is, is this Paul's first word, his last word? Well, step one is, the only thing we know about God in this passage is the wrath of God. The wrath of God revealed from heaven. I And, I, you know, I suppose that we could struggle and say, well, you know, I, I, I understand that we can manipulate this thing around, but I think we have to say, oh, this is just contrary to Paul's view of God. You said an
1: important thing. You said that before he gets into Romans one eighteen, in like the fourth verse, he talks about the resurrection. That's Paul's gospel, right? So that's the, what's being revealed. You know, say like the wrath of God is being revealed. Okay. What Paul's already said, though, in verse four is, is that the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is the resurrection, right? The, the resurrection is what's being revealed. That's the, power of god so if you set it up like that you can see how douglas campbell might be saying well here's an alternative revelation that god is you know the the wrath of god is being revealed it's like no paul's already said in the fourth verse that, like the goodness of god the mercy of god the victory of god over death and christ right so I'm, in other words i'm trying to give myself over to to campbell's argument and in, in your your points here and i think it kind of
2: it's starting to make more sense. As Jim brought out, you know, if I I still think we can take sixteen and seventeen, it, it there is a thesis being worked out here. But the thesis is in regard to what righteousness and how is it revealed? And we know by the end of chapter three, he's going to say that a righteousness have been of God has been revealed apart from the law. Right. So it's Christ. It's Christ the
1: is the right. He is the righteousness, and he is the revelation. It's like these guys are saying, "Oh, the wrath of God has been revealed." Paul's whole gospel is is that God has been revealed in Christ, and Christ was not out here, you know, condemning and whatever, right? I mean, Christ was healing and etc.
2: Ah, uh, but haven't we entered dangerous territory here in the giving up this understanding of wrath? What is going to drive people into becoming Christian? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's the way justification theory works, but actually that's the way most religion works. That's what I was trying to say, but I didn't say it like that. Yeah.
5: What, it, what is the bridge? What is the step? What yeah. is the, the? What trips the wire to move? Was it,
3: was it catalyst? That was that the word you're looking for? Yeah. Catalyst? When you're saying that, I'm, I was thinking about Romans 10 because Paul starts saying how will people call on him if they haven't believed and how will they believe they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will there be a preacher unless they're sent? So there is some kind of uh, chain of events, right? You know, that that leads to the appropriation of the Holy Spirit in our lives and for it to spread from person to person people to people. And so I, I wanted to mention that that Romans 10 does sort of get into that a little bit.
2: Yeah, you put that yeah. very carefully. I like that. One thing I'll
5: at least want to mention is just how Christians behave when they're in a group. My pastor had a sermon, I never heard it said in a, in a pulpit. He said, "I want the kingdom of God to be in this building. I want God's righteousness And peace and joy to be here in this building. He said it much better than that. But for some reason it just came across so plain and simple that something that can be experienced, can be
2: witnessed, can be witnessed. It is an experiential reality. And that's that's ultimately what we're describing. This all comes down to have very practical ramifications. I think our conception of God makes us sick in many instances. Yeah, That what Christ is curing us of is this disease, is this sickness. But he does that through reconceptualizing reality. I mean, there's nothing less than a reconceptualization, reconceptuala- what it means to be human. We, we get this, you know, a justification theory. Well, humans are these kind of philosophical creatures who can arrive at God's omnipotence, omniscience, and know that they're damned. So all humans should be depressed and sad about what they know <laughs> and, and not be able to do anything about it. So we're going to redefine anthropology. We're certainly going to redefine theology. That God is not this, you know, in this, in this section, what we know about God by definition is God is love. In this definition, as in many people's conception, I think the compassion of God has no place. God's mercy, really what Paul is, I think, arguing as Campbell lays it out. Actually, there's no place for mercy in this works righteousness system. Uh, and, of course, what is probably behind this, this Jewish false teacher, and we don't want to characterize it as Judaism, he sees Gentiles, of course, as unforgivable, and Jews as achieving salvation. And Christ is just, you know, he's naming Christ. But how can you say what Christ has done if we can't pin it to circumcision and the law. We all know that circumcision is the sign of an ethical person. Uh, circumcision almost conveys an ethic, and it is then it captures what it means to be uh, uh you know ethical in the sight of God. Isn't that the teaching of the Old Testament? This Jewish teacher might be saying. And so the the whole impetus is put upon the sign. And so, Paul, I think uh, I'm. I was going to give a quick
1: example that I think might play off of what Jim was saying earlier, in like really practical terms. um, I really saw this whenever I first converted to orthodoxy that uh, in myself, and still see it in others, and often still in myself. But that is, is you know, when we do fall, inevitably we fall, right? Whether it's into this or into that, we all fall. And what I was seeing a lot was that people get really super discouraged because they're like, you know, man, I was on fire, you know, and I just keep falling and going to the same thing. And, you know, in the Orthodox tradition, you're supposed to go to confession, you know, and to be healed, like James says, you know. So, uh, and that humility that comes with going to confession and saying, oh, I, did, I did it again or whatever. But you see this agonistic struggle with what we would describe as the law, right? But what a good priest would say is that you're playing the wrong game. In other words, when you start doing that thing, you start beating yourself up, and you're like, oh, man, I'm, you know, you just start going hard on yourself, that you've really misunderstood the whole thing. And that is the whole point is to just return to Christ. So I'm trying to say this in the precise context of this conversation in other words i think that what the temptation is is to always return to the law to say oh man i got to get back to doing being strong and doing the right you know and being perfect or whatever you want to call the law but what i think paul is saying is that no we come to christ so whether we're standing or we're falling whatever it is that the whole point is to return and to receive christ that is christianity that is the faith that is how you receive God. It's not through keeping some code. It's not through uh, some sort of performance. It's unconditional in that sense that the moment that you, like the prodigal, come to your senses and say, I will rise and go to my father, you've already, and, and I will receive, you know, and it's like the father receives him, you know. In other words, all of Christianity is about receiving Christ. Receiving Christ through our minds, receiving Christ through our, you know, eating, drinking, the sacraments, baptism, friendship, the whole thing is about receiving Christ. But I'm afraid that, and I see this again in my own life, and and, and everybody I think experiences this, that we would exchange that for a relationship with the law. Which, of course, is the, what Paul described at earlier as the superego or the crushing sense of the law or whatever you want to call it. So, in other words, in purely practical psychoanalytic terms, I think that St. Paul is offering a therapy, a healing to say that you are going to destroy yourself if you continue, you know, sort of having this relationship, this misorientation, Paul calls it, to the law. Because the whole point of Christianity is is to have a relationship with the merciful Christ. So, in other words, you know, when you sin, it, someone said a profound thing to me the other day. They said, "Well, how could they say that Saint that David, King David, was blameless according to the law?" You know, Saint David or Saint David, you know, King David uh, murdered. You know how the guy murdered. He did all this other stuff or whatever. But then they said this. They said, you know, a huge part of the law. If you go back and look at Leviticus and read the Old Testament isn't just about what to do or what not to do. It has to do with what you do when you sin. If you go back and you look at the law, a huge part of the law is about what to do when you do sin. But it's always a returning to God. And so the reason why you could say that King David was blameless in regard to the law is that whenever Nathan confronted him and he repented or he returned to God, that he, you know, he, he his sin was uh, forgiven. In other words, God is merciful. And so we can do that as Christians now too, right? But I think that we really do oftentimes get this wrong. We have a relationship with the law or some code or the Ten Commandments or whatever you want to call it. And that's what we orient ourselves to instead of to the merciful Christ. So just in a very practical way for anybody who might listen be listening, it's like if you fall... Don't go to the law and look at the law and say, man, I'm a dirty sinner or whatever, you know, and crush yourself. Go to our Lord Jesus, who is the king of mercy, who is always receiving us. That's the condition for salvation, meaning that's the he is salvation. That's how you're saved as you go to Christ. So I just find that really helpful on like a very practical level that can go to the merciful God for acceptance, love, forgiveness, mercy, instead of this impossible law. And I think that that's what the false teacher is holding up, right, in the place of Christ. That's why Paul is inveighing against it.
2: Let me agree with you, but Uh raise an issue in what you're saying. And I think it's there. that part of the argument that Paul, you know, he's beginning to deconstruct what this teacher thinks. And, you know, it's over in chapter 2. He says, you know, you need... You know, that God is merciful and you need to repent. You, O man, you who judge doing, you say, you know, he goes through. Or do you disdain the abundance of his kindness and forbearance and magnanimity, ignorant that God's kindness leads you to the heart's transformation? Paul is still working in the argument of the false teacher here. I think that's Paul's voice, but it's Paul's voice giving rise to this guy's understanding. In this false teacher's understanding, all that a Jew needs to do is to repent, return to God, and receive forgiveness. In chapter 2, except where Paul interrupts himself and says, now according to my gospel, and so what he's been saying in this section is not according to his gospel. That is, that we can almost arrive at the notion that through the law, we're driven to repentance, return to God, and God forgives us. End of the story. No Christ, no gospel, no Paul. All we needed to do was repent, return to God, and be forgiven. And maybe a deathbed confession on the part of a Jew. You know, all he needs to do is repent on his deathbed, Right. That is, if the discussion in chapter 2 is the parameter in which we're working. Is the gospel primarily about repentance and forgiveness? No. I don't think so. The gospel is primarily about the love of God. For God forgiven right? forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We have the love of God. But in most people's understanding, that, that is, in other words, we need Jesus to obtain the forgiveness of God for us by dying under the law and bearing the penalty of the law working out its righteousness and achieving then God's approval and thus we achieve forgiveness but Paul how do you appropriate I mean seriously like how do you we agree
1: that the gospel is the is the love of God the good news is that God loves everyone and you know, desires that all shall be saved. And that in him there is light and there's no darkness whatsoever. We affirm all that, of course, right? But there is the
2: part of... We need human... repentance. Yeah, yeah yeah, we need yeah. Repentance. yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying that we need to understand how radical this repentance is. It's not just a repentance that, whoops, I made another mistake. This repentance is, whoops, I had everything wrong. I misconceived everything, and I'm turning around and realizing an alternative reality. I think that's Christian repentance,
1: and that alternative reality is Christ, the person of Christ. So we receive Him; we receive Him as a person. But again, that's part of the part where I get confused. In other words, you have to re- the, the condition. I would guess is that in some way. The love of God is always being on offer to Hitler. It doesn't matter to who, but that Christ has to be received. God is not violent. God does not you know that, that God waits for us, He knocks on the door and waits for us to uh, open the door to to just receive his love. We don't have to do anything except for get you know receive something.
2: Let, let me close with a with a thought, and that is, I think that this there is no more important conversation. I think that this is why we're here. I think that this is what it means to be a Christian is to do this kind of engagement. Uh, is there is there something else you, you'd rather you know, some other level or some other? In other words, for me,
1: it's kind of NFL football. So I mean, you know, the first opening game. It's on right now. <laughs> it's a great
3: game.
2: You know, I hope that that's the spirit in which we can conduct the class. And even if we can't, you know, I know there's going to be—we're we're not going to all agree on everything. But that's the beauty of it: is I think that we can have this uh, this wonderful conversation that is a life. I mean, this is the Christian life to be talking about the things of God and the deep things of God. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. Glad we could do this. What
5: would you like us to have ready next Thursday? For I've got those five
2: questions. On the Paul versus the teacher part. And by the way, if you want to do the opposite and say, Campbell's all wrong, this can't be true, but if you'll do us the favor of giving us an alternative explanation, mm-hmm. I want to hear a better explanation, Yeah. if, if somebody got it. Brian, either way, just know, man, you're either with us or against us, you're either
1: in or you're out, you know, that's how it works around here. <laughs> we're fundamentalists when it comes to this
4: kind of when it comes to the love of god we got i'm going to be super disappointed if at the end of eight weeks we've all just become double down justification theorists like <laughs> that was going to be the biggest letdown so please don't let that happen <laughs> if you have a really good counter argument you should keep it to yourself
2: all right <laughs> <laughs> okay. awesome we'll Thanks, see you everybody. next week Thanks, you guys bye,
5: bye.
0: forgingplowshares.org